on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Coming up next, America Can We Talk with your host, Debbie Georgiatos. And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Our Thursday shows are very special every week. I'm grateful for a studio audience here, grateful for a very special guest in studio with us, Sydney Powell. I'm going to introduce her, although she needs no introduction, I'll introduce her just a bit, and then we're gonna have a great conversation uh, about her work, uh, actually over a long period of time in the field of law and what she's doing now. Sydney Powell is the author of one book, which I have uh, read and actually interviewed her about numerous times, License to Lie. It's a great book, which uh, really documents much what happened inside the Department of Justice, related to the Enron case and other cases as well. Just a, uh, written by a, a prosecutor who had a very high standard of following the law and the ethics of the law. Uh, so she is an author, she's an attorney who was a, uh, worked in the Department of Justice for many years. She's also the founder of Defending the Republic. And it's, uh, the website is defendingtherepublic.org. And I thought it was a really great thing they had on their website to kind of tell you who she is before we turn to her, what the website says about what they do. It says, Defending the Republic works for everyone who yearns for truth, freedom, and justice. We fight the legal and advocacy battles that others fear. We seek truth above all because nothing can be righted without it, without truth. We are a public interest advocacy group of relentless, fearless fighters with a gust who stand up to corruption, lawfare, and tactics of intimidation. Our lead lawyers have an unmatched record of success. They litigate cases and represent people in ways that have and will change the course of history. We stand for American values, the rule of law, and the principles on which this republic was founded. That is Sidney Powell's organization. Uh, we're having her here today, Defending the Republic. Please help me welcome to the show, Sidney Powell. I Thank love you. that summary. It is what you do. And you know, I have so many things I want to ask about. They're going to relate to January 6th and prosecutions and things like that. But before we do, I want to just talk a little bit more because I learned something at your website today that defending the Republic is not just about election integrity. You actually do lots of other cases. And one, a recent victory you had was a Freedom of Information Act case that was brought against Moderna, the biopharmaceutical uh, vaccine-producing uh, organization. So I'd love to have you start with, uh, just tell us what that litigation was all about, what you got from Moderna. Well, we were at the forefront of encouraging people to think before they took the vaccine. I was extremely suspicious of the whole process from the very beginning. I, I had COVID before anybody knew what COVID was because I'd been traveling to New York and DC. So I got it in 2019 in December. 
uh, and was very sick with it. So I knew the disease was real, but the government response to it was absolutely unprecedented, irrational, and very concerning, just very troubling. So we proceeded to, as, at Defending the Republic, which was formed December 1 of 2020, to put out a lot of information, all the information we could find that was otherwise being suppressed about COVID itself, and then also the vaccine. So getting the Moderna documents was a follow-up to our initial interest in all of it, recognizing that the drug companies were hiding information they did not want Americans to have, of course, as was the government, and they were facilitated in doing that by the government. So we had to sue them to get a massive production of documents that we're still in the process of, of getting and reviewing. But one of the most startling things to me in the production was the fact that Moderna apparently never intended to create spike vax. So there was never any actual spike vax available for anyone to get. In the process of representing our military members, we've represented, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of members of our military who did not want to get the vaccine for different reasons and help them get exemptions. We're now trying to help them get back pay. But in the process of doing that, we learned that the drug companies, there was no actual approved vaccine, not a single dose of it available in the United States. So nobody had a dose of the supposedly real uh, vaccine. It was never actually approved by the FDA. And that just, that just blew my mind. And like I said, we found documents that seemed to indicate Moderna never intended to actually make spike vax. So yeah, I, whatever it is they made and injected into people, I don't think anybody really knows. And it was all, of course, had to be done under the emergency use authorization, which could only apply if there were no other drugs that would treat it. And that's why they had to slam hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and another one that starts with a B that I can't remember how to pronounce. Budesonide. <laughs> thank you. <clears throat> but there were things and are things that are very effective in treating COVID that exist and existed then that they had to belie and say didn't work to, to get this other fraud going. Now, that's a great summary. And I will tell our listeners, you can go to uh, the website for your organization, defendingtherepublic.org, and read much more. You can read in detail. You can read the findings, what, what Moderna was forced to release. And they finally, they, they did try the same thing that Pfizer tried, saying things couldn't be released for, oh, yeah. I don't know how, decades. 50 some, years or something, yeah. Yeah, some crazy thing. And then a court forced them. They did release documents, more coming. You can read uh, more about them at the website. I urge you to do that because I think it is still, there's still a wide swath of Americans who do not really grasp yet how how dangerous the vaccines were that were released on the American public under this emergency use authorization, use authorization uh, rush to get something out there. And it's just important for people to understand. Um, the drug companies knew they were causing heart incidents, uh, Bell's palsy, shingles, miscarriages, all kinds of adverse events, as the medical community calls them, that were destroying people's lives, and yet they went on with production and telling everybody they were fine and even mandating people taking the vaccine. It's, it's absolutely horrific. I think it's New Zealand that's seen excess deaths spike 100%. 
<laughs> since they mandated the COVID vaccine. Yep. I think it's New Zealand also, they're talking about more people actually passed on from the vaccine's effects than, the, than, the, than COVID. Yeah, and England too, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just staggering things we're learning. It actually ties in well with kind of the theme of what I'm gonna talk about today. So I would say, and perhaps I'm naive, but I would say prior to COVID coming along, I had the view that the FDA, they weren't perfect, and the CDC wasn't perfect, and NIH wasn't perfect, but they basically had the best interests at heart of the American people, and they pretty much were there to keep us informed, keep us safe, try to protect Americans from um, danger. And so you just, I think a lot of America woke up during the course of COVID and realized these organizations are not just simply um, inept, but they actually may, they had an agenda we didn't comprehend when it got started. Uh, and I don't know if you want to comment on that because I'm going to turn now to, to the entire, a lot of the episodes uh, related to January 6th. Um, and also related to the prosecutions of President, President Trump. I'm going to go there first because it's the same kind of things that seem to be happening. We're watching, you watch FDA and the other alphabet agencies in Washington, CDC and such. Uh, continuing today, we have the information that's out there about harm from the vaccines. Harm, you know, latent uh, diseases developing, deaths, injuries, disabilities is still pouring out. And yet still, we turn on NFL football, which we do all the time, you know, every time as it came on, and Pfizer's advertising. There is just an astonishing, uh, just relentlessness, unwillingness to, or even, it's not just unwillingness to admit there's a problem, but they're not changing course at all. No. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's breathtaking that there's no reaction on the part of people saying, wow, I guess they, I guess they're on to us. Not at all. No, I don't think we can expect them to admit how bad it is. I mean, we're having to pry every document out of them with a crowbar and they're not going to, they're not going to stand up and say, oh yes, we intended to destroy half the population. It's not going to happen. I can't do it which actually now back to prosecuting President Trump, you know, the various prosecutions that are facing him as well as civil litigation, um, to many people, it seems they're just, they're, there is a, whoever they is, the people who don't want Trump in office, they will stop at nothing to try to prevent him either from, you know, winning the primary or if he wins the primary, winning the general, prevent him from getting in office. One is this prosecution arising out of the, Janu the instance of January 6th. And I mean, you have a year's uh, career, very, very, very successful career as a prosecutor uh, in Department of Justice. So I want to talk about Jack Smith in particular. He is, he is the lead prosecutor on President Trump, against President Trump on the cases arising out of January 6th. And there is a battle now headed to the Supreme Court over the scope of immunity that a president should have. And you know, I mean, I'm, I practiced a lot of years ago. I also didn't ever practice in the great state of Texas, only California, Washington, DC, not here. So, I, but I do wanna talk about the concept of absolute immunity and then whether Jack Smith's arguments are, uh, what he's trying to get the Supreme Court to do, what you think about it. So to start with, why should there be an immunity as to a president's writings and speech during his presidency? There's so much a president has to do and decide in the blink of an eye uh, with information that is given to him by other people. I mean, to the extent a president has personal knowledge, it's, it's almost non-existent because he's the, the point of the spear or the bottom tip of the funnel that all the information goes through and it all comes from other people. So 
he has to have flexibility and there's always he's always weighing competing ideas not just two but oftentimes 10 or 15 different approaches his advisors want him to take to solve a particular problem and there's no way anything would ever get done i mean the government's bad enough as it is already right i mean there's no way anything would get done if every presidential action had to be scrutinized and, and litigated through the courts it would, nothing would work. So that's true in the arena before we get to President Trump in particular, but if you're the president, you have to decide on policy uh, in the blink of an eye, as you're saying, on uh, foreign affairs, some, some apparent attack occurs, how do we respond on all sorts of incidents in America? You've got to decide, and you, you've hopefully assembled a relatively competent group of, of your staff, your, your top advisors, your cabinet, and you can't have anyone sitting in the room thinking, I don't think I'm gonna tell him what I really think because maybe it ends up in the press. This is the, the reason for absolute immunity in presidential communications. And, and the reason for executive privilege, so that ideas are freely expressed to the president and he can consider whatever he wants to consider and reject it. And the confidentiality though, so, so someone could say, okay, well that's during the presidency, you know, that, but you know, why now? Trump is out of the White House, he's a private citizen, he's being prosecuted. Why should this absolute immunity still be, I mean, President Trump is asserting essentially absolute immunity as to statements and communications during his presidency. Why should that be protected now that he's already out of the office? Because it all occurred while he was president. Absolute immunity means absolute immunity. There are other federal officials that have absolute immunity. Chief justices of the, justices of the Supreme Court, every federal judge at any level has absolute immunity from things while he is in office and conducting his business. And th that immunity extends even after they left office? To for these what occurred while they were in office, to what, yes. What, yeah, yes. okay. It doesn't occur to anything that happens after Biden became president. Okay, well, I, until he occupied the White House, yes. I, I like to, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he occupies the White House, I'll give him that much. Um, and the other thing you hear people say as well, this absolute immunity thing. So, you know, I mean, if President Trump had, during the course of his presidency, committed a crime un unrelated to the presidency, such as, you know, robbed a bank or something, I mean, that's, there's not an immunity as to all of his actions, or immunity from prosecution of all of his actions, is that correct? No, I'm, I mean, I'm sure Jack Smith's gonna argue the Watergate case. Yes. Ex extensively, but this isn't Watergate, and it, the differences are, are significant. Yeah, that is actually, I saw in several articles mentioning that there was allusion to Watergate. And actually, quickly, so in that case, the Supreme Court said immunity, or you, can, you should actually, I don't know what, which way, what the Supreme Court said precisely. Well, on top of that, Nixon wasn't prosecuted. I mean, this is a, a federal criminal prosecution against a sitting president, or against a president who was sitting at the time for actions that occurred while he was sitting as president. And that's no, no, no president in the history of the country has ever been prosecuted. So it's unprecedented from every angle you could possibly look at it from. Okay, so this immunity that President Trump's asserting, his lawyers are asserting, this has to do with, with his actions, his statements, so that day he made, of January 6th, or leading up to January 6th, communications he made, text messages, it's all the communications he was sending and receiving regarding uh, the January 6th episode. Is that your understanding? Uh, to be clear, I have not read the indictment. His, okay. So he, but he's trying to, I mean, my understanding is he, Trump's trying to say absolute immunity applies to his actions and words during the time of his presidency. Yes. So is Jack Smith and going to the Supreme Court, 
he is his, I mean, I, I know neither of us have read all the pleadings. I, I certainly have not. But is the, is he's seeking an order from the Supreme Court that there's somehow some carve out um, of immunity of President Trump because of what resulted later, because of what happened in January 6th? And what is the argument that immunity doesn't exist in this case? Well, I know he's going to make the Watergate argument that the president has committed some kind of crime, but I, I don't see how that's going to prevail in the circumstances that I know, at least at this point, of the case. Because he, he was in office, we're talking about words and, and actions, we're not talking about sending people to murder anyone or to break in an office or commit anything that you'd have fair warning of being a crime. So they're trying to, to stretch. I mean, if we were going to talk about people inciting violence or anything like that, we should be looking at people like Maxine Waters, who stood on a big stage and encouraged everybody to get in the face of people just having dinner at restaurants and, and start scenes and commotions. Or I even remember back when the Democrats hired people to go to Trump rallies and start fights. Yes, they did. It, they hired them. They paid them to go do that. Remember that? I mean, that's the first sign to me that they were very afraid of having someone in office that they couldn't control. Exactly. So on this immunity thing, if he goes to the Supreme Court and the court rules, as the Trump attorneys are arguing, that absolute immunity does apply to his statements and communications and such while he's president, doesn't that pretty much... Uh, kneecap, I wouldn't write polite word is, but doesn't that pretty much destroy the prosecution? It's, I do think it would, yes. And so is Jack Smith going to the Supreme Court now versus waiting until a specific issue arises during the trial where you might have to pause the trial to make an appeal on that issue? Is Jack Smith going to the Supreme Court now uh, strategically seen as unfair to the President Trump? Or, or, I mean, how do you see that, his decision to do it now? I don't really know what his thought process is in doing that. Frankly, I think it's it's better for Trump that they go ahead and figure that out now. Okay, so if it's, at least you know what the Supreme Court's gonna say then, yeah. Right, and the sooner they decide the January 6th case that they just decided to take, the better, because that section 1512 has been used to prosecute, I don't know how many hundreds of January 6th defendants, and again, another unprecedented use of the statute. And Absol one that I would argue they, again, had no fair warning that that provision would be applied to their conduct in more ways than one, either legally or factually, when many of them were invited into the, the chambers. Exactly, and that's exactly the topic I was gonna to go to next. This is changing course, and so we have Jack Smith, the um, relentless prosecutor against Trump on the, Jan on the whole January 6th episode. Uh, and then we have the arrests that occurred on January 6th, which I believe are now above 1,200 um, arrests, maybe even more than that with another 1,000 coming. So, so we have many, many citizens still facing trial. Many citizens still uh, have been prosecuted, still serving time. And uh, this appeal that is now uh, raised to the Supreme Court, they've, they've granted cert, I believe, uh, um, certiorari on this. The case involves a gentleman named Joseph Fisher, um, who was charged with crimes in connection with the, the, the uh, events of January 6th. And um, he basically, this um, argument he's making um, before the Supreme Court deals with, it is 18 U.S. Code Section 1512 C2. 
and I'm not going to get Uber into it except to say that was a bill, a, a law that was passed in Congress after Enron and because of Enron, correct? Because of the Arthur Anderson case. Oh, go ahead and tell the... Okay, so this is in license to lie to. It, it all goes back to, yeah, in more ways than one, including one of the villains in license to lie is now the number two person in the Justice Department running all of it. What's his yes. name again, Andrew Weiss? Lisa Monaco. Oh, Lisa Monaco, okay. Lisa Monaco, okay. yeah. Yeah, was a Weissman-trained prosecutor on the Enron Task Force who engaged in all manner of prosecutorial misconduct in the Enron broadband litigation. So, that, I mean, that's a whole nother story. But it, it, it all goes back to their whole view of being able to, I think Holder was one of the ones that started this too. They realized they could prosecute people faster than they could get new laws adopted. So when they prosecute Anderson, they piece together parts of two different statutes to make a crime out of something that wasn't. And so they accused Anderson under what is now, or the, the statutes they pieced together essentially created a catch-all exception that is now embodied in the statute they're using to go after the January 6th people, and they put a 20-year term of imprisonment on it. And it's still a very vaguely worded statute. They intended it to be a catch-all. And I don't think, I don't see how the Supreme Court can follow Arthur Anderson, which they're required to follow. It would be very hard to distinguish it and affirm the, those convictions. I mean, I think the court really needs to take a hard look at it and reverse it for essentially the same reasons they reversed Anderson. And that is despite the, language of the statute that Congress put in there, it's still too vague to give people fair warning that their conduct was criminal. I mean, fundamentally, criminal law is supposed to be pretty obvious. I mean, you shouldn't walk around wondering if you're committing a crime. It should be something so bad you know it's criminal conduct. As I like to say, you know, we have way too many criminal laws. God did it with just 10. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, most everything constitutes murder, hurting somebody, theft, fraud, some variation of the, of the Ten Commandments. It does. I want to do this on this 1512 because I think it's really important to, people can think of this as a technicality and someone's trying to get out of uh, prosecution over technicality. The section, why this is significant, I think, is 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, and uh, the wording is, whoever corruptly, that is in the beginning, and then number one, alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals a record, a document, or other object with the intent to impair the integrity of blah, blah, blah. So that, that's number one. And then two, uh, one ends in or, number two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding. And it was the obstruction of an official proceeding has become the common language in many of the January 6th prosecutions. So it's taking uh, that sentence, which had to do with litigation with, with Arthur Anderson, and saying, you went into the Capitol that day with the intent of obstructing an official proceeding. So this gentleman's argument, and, long, and there are apparently over 300 people who were convicted of this crime using that construction of the statute, uh, who would then, if the court were to throw this out and say, no, that's not a permissible use of the statute, they would all have their convictions reversed. Yes. Yeah. 
And so you know, the point of, I mean, without too much depth, but I, the point I, of. I hope ahead. he's going to argue that corruptly doesn't apply either because there's a specific meaning of corruptly that needs to be factored into it. But also, you know, what constitutes an official proceeding, what the, not just what the statutory intent was, but how the statute reads and how anybody's supposed to have fair warning that going into the Capitol when the doors are open for you is Impeding, something yeah. that warrants a 20-year term of imprisonment. This is exactly what it gets down to, and I liked you raise this before we started, too, about the idea of fair warning, and you said it a moment ago as well. A fundamental concept of the rule of law, you have to know, have some sense of what's illegal, that you really not, everyone knows, you know, if you go in a bank and you pass them a note and says, give me the money, I have a gun, you know, everyone knows, even though it's not written out every detail, they know you can't do that because you're creating a theft. If you walk in the Capitol, which, as I always say, millions of Americans do every year, visit the Capitol, go in, stand around, look at the rotunda, it's so wonderful. I'm still trying to figure out by whose authority and how could they close the Capitol? Yeah. How do they do that? It's a public building. Nobody's ever answered that question for me, and I haven't had time to research it. But yeah, I, I just don't get that. I mean, the public should have been able to go in, sit in the gallery, and, and witness the proceedings that day. And if they want to talk about disrupting official proceedings, look at what happened to the Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. You remember that? I won't use the word I want to use to describe that. Uh, I guess circus would be the most polite thing I can think of, but that's not what really comes to mind. And, uh, it, was, yes. it was bad. It was bad. And another thing that bothers me about the whole J6 thing, aside from the fact I could smell a setup coming from a mile away, when I first heard about it, I heard they weren't going to have porta potties out. I heard the restaurants were going to be closed. I heard Antifa had put a map out. I heard... Uh, they were blocking the bridges so people couldn't leave or had to walk in. All of that was a recipe for a major trap. And I told everybody I knew, I got all the defending Republic people out of D.C. I left D.C. Uh, I told everybody not to go uh, because I just, it smelled like a setup. But the other thing that really bothers me in terms of general law enforcement practices is they didn't arrest anyone that day. No matter what happened, they did not arrest anyone that day. If they had started arresting people, if they'd brought the bus up and started arresting people who were really doing something wrong, it would have stopped. But that wasn't their goal. They had seated the, the crowd with FBI agents and informants. They started shooting tear gas into the crowd from reports I've been given. And then they let everybody leave and hunted people down in a deliberate shock and awe campaign, including I learned from a J6er the other day, it included being arrested with SWAT teams and the whole you know, big impressive force of show of government force and having a flashbang canister thrown at your feet. Just, just to terrify. I mean, that's one of the things I would call a prosecutorial or law enforcement terrorist tactic when any one of the J6ers would have reported in person upon being asked. Not to mention the horrific waste of our tax dollars to, to send those teams out to terrify American citizens, including you know, former law enforcement people or military members being dragged out of their homes in the middle of the night. 
when they were released, went home from D.C. as if nothing had happened. And I'm con contrast that with the reaction to the Black Lives Matter riots that have destroyed hundreds of millions of dollars of property and other true riots. I noticed that one of the articles Debbie sent me a link to starts, has a picture of people at the Capitol and calls them Trump rioters. They didn't start out as Trump rioters and most of them didn't become Trump rioters. Yeah, there were a few that did some breaking and entering. Uh, I'm still not sure some of those weren't government people. You know, it's gonna take a while to get the truth out about all of it. But I'm, I'm just appalled at the entire law enforcement approach to handling J6, and I think you know we may need a statute that that says you know if you, if a police officer sees a crime being committed, they need to act immediately and stop this business of letting a crime go on, which will only escalate. You know if they'd if they'd arrested five or six people and people had seen that or put out an announcement, go home now over the loudspeakers or anything else, people would have left. But no, they not only set it up. They encouraged it, and then by not engaging in appropriate law enforcement every minute of that day, they encouraged it even more. I, you know, I had ever focused on that fact of why it was, because we, we recently were at an event, we heard a, a husband and wife couple who had been there on January 6th and were, uh, you know, went home thinking it was all fine, went home and months later, someone is literally the story you told about throwing a flashbang, break down their door, show up, and all these people, and you hear this story in many of the cases, I actually read a lot of the cases, where they just, they, they, they either say then or later, you know, you could have just told me, I, I would have reported to the local sheriff, whatever you told me to do, and the, and the shock and awe thing of, you know, armored tanks People showed up with the really big guns, 20 people in someone's front yard. Same with uh, Dr. Simone Gold, whom I think you know. She's been on the show many times. She's back home in California uh, months later, a couple months later, same thing, middle of the night, door broken down. So, such an extreme reaction and, and unprecedented and unjustified by the fact. You'd think they were trying to capture terrorists who were about to you know, take down the country. And these are just American citizens out of protest. So I think they're, what they're trying to do is send a message to people, don't even think about protesting uh, the, the current government. I, I mean, do you, do you take that message? Yeah, definitely to conservatives. Right. Look, contrast that with what happened when Trump was inaugurated. There were uh, fires, car fires, limousine fires set all over town. Uh, people holding the gates shut to keep people from going to the inauguration. I, knew, I personally knew people that said they couldn't get to the inauguration for the riots, protests, really involving, I guess you could call it mostly peaceful, but fiery <laughs> protests. Is that the, yeah. is that Having the, been there, it was not mostly is, peaceful, is I'll that, tell you. We, we did get to the inauguration, but it was a battle. And yes, the street, side streets very nearby, filled with lunatic acting people, and it didn't seem to matter at all. And I don't recall any wave of protests. And certainly, and not I sure don't recall doors. any massive prosecutions or anybody being hunted down in a shock and awe campaign and flashbangs being thrown at their street feet, even if they'd set fire to cars. 
uh, tr truly amazing. So I do want, I want to be sure, uh, hit the absolute immunity thing and talk about why that really matters. And I didn't do one last question on that. So what is the consequence to America if, if uh, the Supreme Court were to say, you know what, this absolute immunity thing, that's kind of old fashioned. We can't have that in this case. You know, we can't have it or going forward, we're not going to have that. What does that do to the presidency? Might as well not have it. Right. You can't get any advice. By the way, prosecutors have absolute immunity. That is a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> if we could first eliminate the absolute immunity that prosecutors have and at least limit it to a qualified immunity, and I'd love to see a provision that if a prosecutor knowingly convicts an innocent person of a crime he knows they didn't commit while he hid evidence that, knew, that he knew they didn't commit it, that they would serve the time instead of the person they wrongfully convicted. Ooh, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And that's actually also a good segue into, I mentioned your book, License to Lie, and honestly, that's where I met you. you. You wrote this book, and someone put on an event, and you were speaking, and they asked me to do a Q&A. That's, a, I know. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. where I met you. We, yeah. we, and this was, it reads like a fiction. I mean, it reads as fast reading. It's not, it's a little bit thick, but it's, it's just, it's fast reading. It's wonderful. So you mentioned though, before we started that there were two other books you wish people would also read. Yes. Um, the first one is by my friend Harvey Silverglate. It's called Three Felonies a Day. It's a fairly short, I think, just paperback book you can get on Amazon. Uh, Harvey is a traditional liberal, a Harvard graduate from the old school, and uh, his premise is that the average American citizen commits three felonies every day that they do anything in their lives without even knowing it because there are so many criminal laws. And he wrote that book at least 20 years ago. And there's been nothing but an explosion and pr proliferation of criminal laws. So many that there is no way to know what all is prohibited. That's one of the big problems with the obstruction of justice proceeding statute they want to use against all the J6 people. So that book, by the way, and the three felonies a day, um, we're going to get to the other book, also your, your second book, Conviction Machine, but on three felonies a day, it's bad enough that many things are crimes, but people don't know it. So it's not really fair warning. You don't recognize all these crimes, but it gives the government more power to selectively prosecute. And I would love to have you describe why that is. Exactly. So with so many things being crimes, it's like Stalin said of his best right-hand man, Berea, I think yep, his name yeah. was, uh, just show me the man and I will find the crime to pin on him. Because you can dig in the bank records or financial statements or tax returns of almost anybody and make a crime out of something if that's what you want to do. And, and like I describe in the book, they're prosecutors who just flat out make up crimes by piecing parts of different statutes together or make up facts. And that are, obviously they're not facts if they're made up and make up a narrative that they want to prosecute someone on. And it, it's been happening for more than two decades that I know of, and I'm sure it happened before that as well. But it's been very prominent in the last 23 years. I mean, the things I wrote about in License to Lie started happening in 2000. And, and I can trace a lot of other problems in the country back to the year 2000. I mean, that's when the administrative state really exploded. That's when uh, surveillance of even American citizens really exploded, the Patriot Act and, and all of that. 
Uh, and then Obama came in and he turned all those weapons that was, were supposed to be directed toward people who were threats to us against the American people themselves. And, and now it's being used and has been being used against conservatives in particular. Yeah, the selective prosecution notion, it used to be back, you know, in the civil rights era as one of the prime complaints and very legitimate complaints about some people pushing for the civil rights legislation was just this notion that the crime, the law says the same, but selectively they fed, said, especially in the South, blacks more likely to be prosecuted than whites were for the same kind of conduct. And that's blacks. still true. Yeah, well, but... When but, I wrote this book, I thought I would be welcomed by the Democrats in particular because one of my great concerns has always been the disproportionate prosecution of minorities and how differently they have been treated in prisons and, and prosecutions. I say prosecutions, conviction rates, sentencing rates, it's a whole, it's a pattern. And what I was gonna get at was that used to be something, as you're saying, mostly Democrats, but pretty much everyone wanted that exposed. They want people to understand how dangerous it was. They want to stop. So this historical episode with respect to race is now being used by a government to hold on to power to be used against their political enemies. We can find something in any one of you, I'm pointing to my audience, but any one of you anywhere, we could find it if we dig long enough, there'll be something. Yeah, or just make it up. So, well, that, well, then you end up living in fear of the state. You end up, as the January 6th prosecutions will no doubt uh, cause, people are afraid to speak up. They won't, don't want to protest. They're definitely not going to go to Washington, D.C. to protest. They're not going to speak up and say, yes, I think election was stolen. I think X, Y, Z. You just, you're training people to shut up. This isn't on your list of topics. I should have told you about it beforehand. But another very important part of the First Amendment is the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. That includes filing lawsuits like the election lawsuits that we filed four of um, by lawyers that were working with me or volunteering for defending the Republic right after the election. We got sanctioned by a judge in Michigan uh, for more than $150,000 and bar referrals made on all of our law licenses. We are being pursued in Michigan and in our respective home bars, including the Texas bar against me because of that judge's decision in Michigan. We are now, we have filed a petition for writ of certiorari with the Supreme Court because the um, Sixth Circuit affirmed that sanctions order and the bottom line of what they want to do to us is make it impossible for conservatives or people with unpopular causes from the government's perspective to even be able to obtain lawyers. They want to keep anybody they don't like from being able to obtain a lawyer. There's nothing like the threat of $150,000 sanction against you and losing your law license to try to chill other lawyers from taking a case. That's one of the reasons we've had such trouble finding lawyers to help the J6 defendants, because not only did they heap uh, bar grievances against us, but they, of course, you know, I've been sued by Dominion for more than $1.3 billion, I think, and by Smartmatic for $2.7 billion, and by Eric Coomer for I don't even know how much. And, and multiple other lawsuits have been filed against me also. 19 grievances were filed against me by people I've never met, don't know, had no connection with. 
uh, starting December 1, when we filed our first suit on November 25th, and had finished filing our suits, I think, by December 5th, but the grievances started coming in like every three weeks uh, for several months on my law license. Most of them, the bar required us to answer. All of that, all of that is an effort to chill any lawyer from standing up for any client in a kind of adverse situation, regardless of the cause. They, they can do the same thing for a civil rights cause or, or anything else, but they, they went full force. It had to have been planned and organized, and it was definitely well-funded because the grievances rolled in in groups of three about every three weeks. The lawsuits came once a month for several months. Just an incessant stream of, of battering uh, and needless work that had to be defended uh, to even get through it. And it's, it's still going on. And that cert petition is very important. Uh, I, I mean, I really hope the Supreme Court will protect the right of individuals to have counsel without threat of uh, being ruined in their profession. There's even a group that's called the 65 Project mm -hmm. that was formed. Supposedly, it's bipartisan, but its, it's sole purpose has been to make us toxic in our communities, destroy our livelihoods, get us disbarred, sanctioned, and everything else for having filed those election suits. They published a list of 100 people they wanted to destroy. And how they got 501c3 nonprofit status <laughs> in a couple of weeks, I, I really don't understand that. Uh, absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought all that up, and um, I, I'm going to explore that a little bit more. So first, uh, in a nutshell, what is the issue on CERT, the issue you, uh, you raised um, to the Supreme Court? Well, we've raised several issues. Uh, one includes the electors and electors clause, but the primary issues from my perspective are the imposition of sanctions against us for <laughs> they claimed we had no reasonable basis for our filing, and the but judge it's frivolous filing. Yeah, the judge went through and nitpicked affidavits. In filing a federal complaint, you don't even have to attach affidavits, but because we knew the issues were so important, and so many people had sworn to their concerns, we had approximately 800 pages of affidavits, including expert reports providing the court with reasons for the allegations in our complaint, and we cited in the complaint to the reports. We never got a hearing to actually have any witness testify to answer any of the court's questions, but instead she went through and she nitpicked different statements of affiance and decided on her own that they weren't credible and we had no basis for them, even though these people had sworn to them and no affidavits were required and just generally uh, picked apart the case. So we have spent more time litigating and having hearings on the sanctions than we ever did on the merits, but we had no hearing on the merits of the election fraud cases yeah. in that's, any of the courts. That's what I wanted to point out was the four cases you had. There were many other cases that you were not involved in, but the four cases you were, the courts never looked at the underlying evidence. They, no. they, they dismissal on whatever it was, whatever the bases were, it was standing, or the other one was, right. the others were. They didn't even look at the evidence, which makes the argument that what you filed was frivolous, 
particularly lame, illogical, right. absurd. If you didn't look at the evidence, then why is it you get to say that this was a frivolous filing? And the other thing it does, it is like an election fraud protection racket. Okay, I said that, you didn't say that. But this is like an election fraud protection racket. The courts won't look at the evidence. They'll go after the lawyers who do raise it. And the, and the average Joe Q public, who isn't going to read pleadings and may not get heavily immersed in the election integrity issue, they think it's all a facade. And so it allows election fraud to be perpetuated because the message has been sent to America. There's nothing there. There's nothing. Oh, it's serious. all been debunked. Oh, uh, debunked, all, debunked, all been debunked. debunked. And you know, this is a tactic. I was thinking about how early this started. Right after Biden uh, assumed the White House, was plunked into the White House, it was not two months later, it may have been less than that, Department of Homeland Security put out a bulletin in which they were warning that citizens who questioned the integrity of the 2020 election might be domestic terrorists. They actually put that out because I had a, 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 you know, a, a national security expert on my show saying this is unprecedented. It actually says that. Now it didn't say, don't say one word, but the net of it is you take that, if you question election integrity, especially 2020, you might be a domestic terrorist and everyone knows that means they start watching you, following you, you might get banned from flying, whatever will happen to you. This was a, not just, again, I mean, it's horrible what you're describing as you and other lawyers and the court's complicity, but it's even a broader message from this administration. Nobody says a word about election integrity. I, I mean, I don't know if you have followed that, bullet, that bulletin, I, but... I can't believe I missed that one, but I, oh I, my I, gosh. I missed that one. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it was quite incredible. Because at the end of the day, if there really is the, what I believe is systemic fraud in the election system, I believe there is systemic fraud in our elections, not just starting in 2020, but in last, whatever it is, 12 plus years, 14, whatever, how far you want to go back, maybe even 20 years, you're being taught you, and you don't challenge it either. You don't even talk about it. And what the, obviously the result is, whoever it is uh, orchestrates all this wins. That, that's the result. Um, I think, and you, we, I, we have got to really hope the Supreme Court takes the case, and I would encourage you all to go to defendingtherepublic.org. The cert petition is posted there. You can understand it, and it, it's just extremely important that the right to petition, which essentially guarantees all the other rights right. in, the, in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, because if you can't file a lawsuit against a government entity, and it's the government entities they awarded sanctions to. They awarded sanctions, uh, ordered us to pay the city of Detroit. It's even worse because the city of Detroit intervened. We didn't sue the city of Detroit. So the city of Detroit intervenes and then gets a $150,000 sanction award essentially against us for having filed a suit that we didn't even file against the city of Detroit. It, it just couldn't be more perverted uh, a yeah. more perverted application of, of sanctions against lawyers who filed well-intentioned, important litigation that raised federal mm -hmm. constitutional issues. And related to that, on the January 6th defendants, I know I reached out to you six months ago or so. I, I had people on my show who were January 6th defendants. I realized they had a, a series of public defenders, um, and, and the case, they did not feel their case was being uh, represented as well as it could have been. So, and we talked a little bit about that time about, you know, can we find a lawyer who might help these people? I don't mean necessarily pro bono, but someone who helped defend these cases. And we were talking about the idea that the same phenomenon you're describing, it reaches down to the level of the average lawyer 
doesn't want to take a case defending the January 6th defendants because they're caught up in this, this smearing of people who would question elections. And so, I, I mean, to this day, I believe it continues. Oh, it even extended to finding lawyers for lawyers. That's how far the chilling effect has gone. Yeah, it, it, it's staggering. And, and so to have, and you know, I'm always surprised by how much, as I say, the people who don't pay attention, they assume, well, why would you want to do that kind of work? Why should they have to? Either the people deserved it, they all deserve prosecution, or they, they just, they, the January 6th myth of an insurrection has penetrated the American consciousness, at least on the left, to the point there's not a lot of sympathy for these people who are suffering in conditions. Um, oh, and that actually reminds me of something nice I want to tell you about Sidney Powell. I still, I still want to hit um, Hunter Biden, and, uh, and I still want to hit, who, who refused to, I don't want to hit him physically. I want to discuss his failure to um, appear. And I, I want to mention an important comparison. Uh, you all probably recall 9-11. <laughs> we do. Well, there were hundreds of terrorists that were put in different prisons here in Guantanamo Bay. Democrats got pro bono awards for running to represent the terrorists who were responsible for 9-11 or had some connection with it, while lawyers who represented and filed lawsuits using the First Amendment right to petition here have been sanctioned, uh, threatened with disbarment, sued for billions of dollars and everything else. And can't find jobs. That's yeah. the other, they can't find jobs when they finish taking a case like this. Okay, so I turned to Hunter in one second, but I want to tell something nice about Sidney Powell. So I sat next to her at a function recently and the speakers were these two January 6th defendants. One thing they talked about, they formed the American Patriot Project, and they're just basically trying to inform Americans about the actual situation, the conditions of the jails in Washington, D.C., how the uh, January 6th defendants are being mistreated, uh, the scope of... How their families need help. Oh, the families need help. They, they need help paying for lawyers. They have, they have physical abuse occurring in the jails. And so uh, they, one th project they started was write a letter to a January 6th defendant who's in jail. So they, at this function, they hand out envelopes. Here, you can write letters. So I, I took a stack, everyone took a stack, and they brought them here, and people were passing them out here at this show last week. I noticed after that, Sidney Powell put up on Facebook, um, instead of buying your friend's Christmas presents they really don't need anyway, donate to the American, American I'm sorry, I lost the name of it, American Project. Patriot, Patriot Project. So we, we both sat at that lunch. That's what she put up the next day. You know, think about donating to this, the American Patriot Project. They're looking out for these families. It's extraordinary what they're doing. Plus, it was a very sweet posting you put up. Yeah. I thought that was really, and, and really very, very true. No. Okay, last quick thing. So Hunter Biden, subpoenaed by the House Oversight Committee uh, for a private, uh, you know, not yet public hearing, but a private do over his many accusations against him. Didn't go, snubbed the subpoena, showed up and, and in public and had, hey, I'll give my testimony right here. He just stood there with a the microphone, blathering away, and then he walked off taking no questions. So, I mean, what usually happens if you snub a subpoena by a House committee? What's the usual well, process? Well, if you're, if you're a Republican, you're prosecuted by the Department of Justice. You're like Peter Navarro, arrested as you're about to get on a plane, handcuffed, shackled, everything else, uh, humiliated publicly as much as is humanly possible. 
or like Steve Bannon, he was, he was prosecuted and threatened with jail. I don't know what the current status of that is, but that's what has happened to Republicans. If you're Eric Holder and you're held in contempt of Congress, nothing happens. If you're Hunter Biden, it'd probably be a waste of time for anything to happen because he's going to be pardoned anyway. But it'd be nice if you know Joe would go ahead and do that and save the taxpayers all the money of the prosecution. Yeah, Joe put out a statement how deeply upset. Uh, there were three ver uh, adjectives: uh, upset, disappointed, or whatever. You know, complaining about how could they pick on my poor sweet son? Oh, it's I, I mean, it's, it's staggering. It's just, I, I can't even go down the path. It's so of, bad. Yeah. of Joe Biden, except I guess they are going to do an official vote on whether to begin impeachment proceedings. So um, they had one vote, but I think there's another vote coming tomorrow. And um, on the testifying and behind closed doors issue, that's what the entire January 6th committee did. I testified for six and a half hours for the January 6th committee behind closed doors. And people can read it on your website. Yeah, you can read all my testimony on the website. It's a sign of someone who has nothing to hide. I'm totally serious. You, you testified, and then you put it out there. Here's what I know. I, I love that. So we do allow our happy audience to ask questions, um, and there's a microphone. You can raise your hand, and he'll bring it to you and speak right in the microphone while you're thinking about your question. So Cindy uh, Powell has her book, uh, License to Lie, which I can't urge you strongly enough, to, especially for, uh, I mean, for everyone. Uh, you can still buy it on Amazon. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com or right here for those in studio. We have a pal right over there. You can hang around. Uh, there's no show in the studio afterwards. You will not be rushed out as we sometimes are. So the books are available and I'm sure Sydney would be happy to sign them. If you'd like to buy a book here, I urge everyone. It is, it's amazing reading if you really want to be caught up with this, the um, status of the America's Justice Department. Even before January 6th came along, License Eliza is just a fabulous book. And preferably book. buy it from sydneypowell.com. Uh, it's a much better source than Amazon. One of the problems I've had with Amazon is they'll order an inordinate number of books and then they return them and it costs me double when they return them. It puts me in a, actually I'm in a hole on the books, but anyway. Okay, don't go to Amazon. Go to sydneypowell.com, order your book there. And actually, your other book, Conviction Machine, I have a copy at home. I couldn't find it to bring it in, but Conviction Machine, another real actual conviction of America's justice system. You ought to read that too. Okay, questions? There's one right there. Oh, and I co-wrote Conviction Machine with Harvey Silverglade, who wrote Three Felonies a Day. I'm scared to read that book, by the way, Three Felonies a Day. Uh, I'm not sure thinking about it. Probably 10 felonies a day now, so. <laughs> <laughs> or in my case. No. I have a million questions and I know I could ask you all day long, but I, I'm gonna limit two real quick. One, we've been hearing forever about this exor um, exorbitant amount of sealed indictments that are some point, that's just total bull, okay. Yeah. And then the second thing is a couple of weeks ago, it came out that Jack Smith did quite a brisk business in blackmail when he was a uh, American prosecutor in the international in courts. the Hague. I don't yeah. know anything yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Sydney. Hi. Okay. Question. I first heard of you whenever you represented General Flynn. If you could identify the the thing you're the most proud of that you've done in your profession, what would it be? Oh goodness. Um, Well, definitely, I mean, we essentially changed the course of history for General Flynn. He would have yes. been sentenced to prison. He'd still be in prison now. 
were it not for the, frankly, inhuman effort my little team made to do what we did to right that wrong. Yeah, it was. In fact, I've, I've looked back at some of the work we did and, and remember, I mean, two times I literally fell because I was so exhausted. I mean, I literally <laughs> fell down on the concrete because I was oh, so exhausted. Um, but I looked back at that work and it was, it was really, really good work. <laughs> we did good work. I, I had, God sent angels to me a couple of times in the process of representing General Flynn. And uh, I would literally go to bed every night and say, God, you know, just please help us find the truth. And uh, General- what, what was that judge's name, the judge in the case? Uh, Emmett Sullivan. Emmett Sullivan. Who ironically is the hero, the judicial hero of License to Lie. Um, yeah. So I, I need to write the book about the Flynn case because there's a whole lot that, uh, needs to be said about all that. That would be great to do. I was going to say another kind of eye opener for the American people was watching that case and watching Judge Emmett Sullivan, who simply was not going to give up on this prosecution, even when you and your team had brought the evidence before him. There was no basis. He, I mean, everyone thought he was going to have to dismiss it. And he just wouldn't do it. Yeah, even I mean, when the Department of Justice, which is the only entity that can prosecute under the saying, Constitution. We're dropping all our charges. Right. And moved to dismiss the charges. Judge Sullivan got himself a special prosecutor to continue it. I mean, this is a guy, that, talk about corruption of the judicial system, lost his role, lost his clarity about his role as a judge. And just, I, I, I want this guy, I'm just going to do it. It was shocking. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Yes. I was just going to ask follow up. How did you happen to get that case? From the book, he he read the book, and his brother met me at a seminar, and then eventually General Flynn and I met. I went to I actually went to the hearing uh, as I was writing articles for the Daily Caller and a few other entities, and I was at the sentencing hearing in front of Judge Sullivan, and I think I met General Flynn there for the first time. Okay, I made the sequence incorrect, but you know what else? I, I, the first time I met you was interviewing you about this book. There was also an event someone put on. They asked me to do a Q&A with you. It was just as the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax was exploding, and all these names were coming up, and, and someone wanted to have just catch us up. What's exactly going on? And, you were, and, and I don't know if you remember this incident, but it, first of all, I texted her ahead of time, and I said, I can get you the questions by that morning. And she said, Never mind, just surprise me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so I just did. But second of all, during that time, so many people at me were saying, wouldn't it be great if she represented Flynn? That'd be awesome, awesome. It was like the next day or the next week that you announced you're gonna represent him. Anyway, that was pretty cool. Okay, more questions? Seriously? Okay, maybe, oh, go ahead, good. One second, wait for a microphone, if you would please. This is about COVID. So you were one of the first ones to get COVID. Had you ever heard of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine at the time? No, you and just, I didn't even call my doctor. I could tell it was a virus. I just kind of self-monitored. I, I got very, very sick. I mean, I ran a fever for days. I should have called a doctor or done something. But um, no, I just braved it through with uh, grit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, Every, at any point, will you ever ask to help President Trump with any litigation? Uh, ask. Uh, his help in prosecuting or whatever is helping him. Well, you know, he named me special counsel, yeah, on December 18th. He told his staff several times that he wanted to name me. He did actually name me special counsel, but the, the room was such that it was clear that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I think it was Pat Cipollone or one of the other White House counsel that just looked at the president and said, you can name her anything you want and nobody's going to pay any attention to it. Which I found the most remarkable statement I've probably ever heard. I mean, who was president? I guess White House counsel. That was actually another uh, eye-opening. We had, this is not a third one, I guess I'm saying, but realizing pe President Trump seemed bigger than life during his campaign and during his presidency. But at the end, when you and others were able to point out to him, there's a real problem in this election and, and, and how votes were tallied. He just, I, I, it was one time he seemed to just kind of not be sure how to proceed and stumbled along with and eventually listened to the people who told him to back off. We're out of time and all that, but, but we are past time. But I, it really was a time he was left um, uh, that you were left with the impression he really got kind of led around by the people at the end and, and, and encouraged him not to st uh, fight when he could have or not to stand up when he could have. And I think that you did a great job, even for the brief period of time he named you special counsel. <laughs> you were helping him a lot. Okay, we're out of time. I do want to, number one, and, and first of all, to Sidney Powell, I just want to thank you for coming and also just commend you for your, you are brave, you are relentless, you're unwavering in following the law. I mean, what you, I still remember that impression in License to Lie, how just resolute and clear you were about the existence of truth, pursuing truth, following the law. And so I thank you for that and for all you're doing now, I'm especially defending the Republic, doing more than just election integrity. Just thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for being here. And for everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. A week from today, we um, have joining us in studio, Texas Attorney, uh, excuse me, Texas Land, uh, I can't speak English. Sid Miller is coming in. <laughs> Big guy, Ag Commissioner, always has a hat, a huge hat. He doesn't even take it off at formal affairs. Believe me, I've seen him there. Big uh, hat, he's our Ag Commissioner, but he's really quite an advocate for Texas um, and for Texas ownership of our own land, not foreign ownership, lots of other things. And the following week, which is the week between Christmas and New Year's, we have John Leake coming in. He is an author of many, many, many books, including his most recent one. It's actually a true story, a breaking story about uncovering the evidence of what apparently was a uh, true black widow a uh, serial murderer of her former husband's woman who used to live in Highland Park has moved away. Uh, staggering story. It just is a little bit is non-political. I think my first non-political show in 10 years. <laughs> However, John Leake will be here last Thursday and, and so that is it for America Can We Talk. I do this show every day. I do it to speak truth about America. This is America Can We Talk. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. I'm Debbie George Addis, and I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. He's been trying to turn the music on. <laughs> I can